0: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the Corporate Monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of this week's top stories are around third-party risk and the FCPA, including high-risk distributors and potentially high-risk employees. What is conscious integrity in the corporate setting? What about cognitive governance in the corporate setting? What, are the, what is present responsibility and how does it relate to development? What are the disclosure and notification requirements when managing a crisis and have you thought through that beforehand? Why do you need a social media compliance as a part of your ethics and compliance programs? And we take a look at an article on why ethics and compliance still matter. Finally, the Department of Justice, co- comings and goings around employees in the fraud section. Also, a little chat about baseball. Surprise, surprise. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. The Voice of Compliance, along with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 165 for the week ending, August 2, 2019, the Zach a key to the Astros edition. Jay, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Astros hit a home run Boo. this week on the trading deadline, where literally at the last minute, they obtained Zach Grineke from the Arizona Diamondbacks and... Uh, Houston is now the prohibitive favorite to take it back, win the World Series. So uh, I'm going to lord that over you guys uh, as absolutely as long as possible uh, in my own uh, indomitable way. But we actually, other than the Zach Grineke trade, there was some compliance and ethic news of the week. So you want to take a look at that or you just want to listen to me coo about Zach Grineke, uh coming in to be the number three starter for Houston?
1: Why don't we just jump right into this week's stories, Tom? Uh, first off, we're taking a look at FCPA risk and third parties. What does uh, Alexandra Gillis have to say on the FCPA blog?
0: So, uh, Alexandra Gillis, a well-known journalist, sort of in the uh, anti-corruption, anti-bribery, uh, energy oil space, has written uh, several books around this issue, As an upcoming book, How Oil Corruption Contaminates the World. And when I first saw this, Jay, I was uh, a little, uh, uh, viewed it with a little askance because um, I thought it it was really not realistic. But uh, the more I read what she had to say, the more I thought about it, she's actually making, I think, some pretty good business sense in her And her concept or her point was that uh, extractive companies, including uh, energy companies uh, located here in Houston, uh, should they move away from corruption-prone intermediaries? And I don't think anyone disagrees with that statement. But I got to thinking about the larger point, which is actually just moving around away from third-party intermediaries. And now sometimes you can't do that because it's enshrined in local law that you have to have a a third-party intermediary. But um, I had a really interesting talk with a former chief compliance officer for uh, Baker Hughes once, and his argument, obviously the chief compliance officer, but his business argument to the business was, why would you want to have an intermediary between you and the customer? Uh, so uh, why have, you know, an extra step when you could have a direct relation, direct business relationship with the customer and, really struck me that he he was I think uh, pretty far ahead of the curve when he first articulated that but it's a a pretty good business point if you can have a direct relationship with a customer you're gonna have a better overall customer relationship and, and I don't think that's rocket science and Alexander uh really uh, I think picks up on that thought or that line of thinking uh, she talks about some of the most recent uh FCPA enforcement actions and other international anti-corruption enforcement actions, and, and points to, as as almost everyone knows, third parties are still the biggest risk under the FCPA. So uh, I thought it was an interesting point. Um, she certainly got her own perspective uh, to get across. Nevertheless, when you start thinking about it as a business process issue, it, it actually uh, demonstrates inefficiency. And if you can bring efficiency to a business process, through a compliance solution, I think that's uh, exactly the direction that compliance wants to go and indeed needs to go uh, going forward. So uh, Mike Volkoff looked at high-end or rather high-risk distributors this week. Uh, what did you think of his two-part series?
1: Uh, as always, Mike uh, pens excellent stuff, and we link to it in the show notes. Uh, This is really an appropriate subject, considering what you just spoke about in Alexandra. And what Mike does is he takes a look at the relationship between uh, a company and its high-risk distributor. And he says that while you rely on a network of distributors, it creates its own set of compliance challenges. And as a consequence, a company has to monitor its distributors and adopt proactive strategies to identify potential problems. He goes about and outlines six steps and says, Assuming we have identified our high-risk distributors and prioritized them on a risk ranking formula, we'll want to focus on the following. Number one, the definition of the exact distribution chain and reliance on sub-distributors. Two, anti-corruption risk created by the distribution chain and outflow of money. Three, review of transactions for unusual sales or pricing. Four, potential sanctions risk through resales of goods, five, confirmation of distributors, and six, confirmation of distributor completion of any compliance requirements. So that's part one. And in part two, he builds on the six issues and has a general list of issues that are specific uh, to the relationship with a high-risk distributor. Number one, issue distribution chain and foreign government interactions, Number two, the outflow of money. Again, compliance should examine the proper use of funds that are given to the company or distributor may be used in that manner. Three, transaction reviews. Four, sanction risks. Five, confirmation training of participation. And then six, distribution contract compliance. So all this comes to the fact that you were saying before, when you have a third-party relationship or you're one step removed from the end-customer, you have to really uh, look at these issues that are created by using a distributor model, especially in high risk areas. Uh, Tom, next up, uh, Shirin Alheiser explains in the FCPA blog what is conspicuous integrity.
0: Jay, I thought this was a really interesting article, and 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 frankly, really liked the direction she took this discussion. Um, she talked about countries where there is a – that are ranked high for the perception of corruption on the TICPI, correctly noting this is the perception of corruption. And she pointed out that in countries that are low – on have a low perception of corruption, if um, you are asked to pay a bribe, you are less likely to do so. Um, but if conversely, if there's a high perception of corruption in the country, if you're asked to do so – uh, you're more more, more likely to do so. So she really looked at how can you attack a country's perception of corruption within its borders. So this is not looking at, you know, Tom and Jay, two Americans doing business overseas is not looking at our respective employers or U S multinational. This is looking into the country outside of the United States and, uh, a group called the, um, uh, National uh, Integrity, I uh, believe, has, no, excuse me, the Accountability Lab has built something called the Integrity, integrity Icon, which is they, a program they've created where um, they go to uh, countries and uh, put on symposia to help promote integrity and show people Uh, how they can do this. And it's uh, started in Nepal in 2018, excuse me, 2014. It spread to Liberia, Pakistan, Mali, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Nigeria, and Mexico. Uh, And they are um, getting people to not only understand the the dangers and the nefarious uh, effects of corruption, but also uh, how to raise their speak up, raise their hand, uh, and how to uh, resist uh, being uh, extorted to pay a bribe. And uh, I thought this was a great initiative because uh, certainly the FCPA is a supply-side law, and uh, but many of the um, other places across the world, uh, the FCPA really has no legal jurisdiction and it has no applicability for the people who are extorting money and demanding the bribe. So uh, interesting way to think about the worldwide fight against uh, bribery and corruption and how to do something about it.
1: Good stuff, Tom. Uh, Next up, we have the first of two articles coming from Corporate Compliance Insights. And the first article, um, James Bone begins a five-part series on what is cognitive governance. And uh, basically, this is a radical departure from the traditional risk management theory. Uh, What Mr. Bone has learned in 10 years of research suggests that risk management is on the verge of a deep renewal and advancement. And the most surprising and commonly cited failure by risk management is human behavior. Human behavior is cited as the greatest vulnerability in cybersecurity, but it is also the leading cause of fraud, operational, and organizational failure. He takes a look at... Uh, cognitive Governance, and he basically cites five disciplines. Number one, risk governance, separating the duties of risk management and risk assessment analysis. Number two, perceptions of risks, which seek to understand different views and perceptions of the risks of that hinder risk government. Human element design, which addresses cognitive load, situational awareness, human-machine interaction. Intelligence modeling focuses on business performance and capital structure concerns risk-adjusted returns on capital. Cognitive governance is designed to expose blind spots and inefficiencies that exist in all organizations that review risk management as a separate and distinct strategy. Instead of starting with an answer like traditional risk frameworks, a cognitive risk framework is centered on asking better questions not yet answered. In order to fully explain cognitive governance, we need to break down the five principles of cognitive governance and demonstrate how the rest of the pillars are driven by and informed by its principles. So as we said, this is part one of the five-part series, and I'm sure we'll check back in on it next week. The second article we have from Corporate Compliance Insight is my continuing look at suspension and debarment within um, the ethics and compliance community. Uh, Specifically, this is part four, looking at present responsibility and and its determinations. Every compliance professional should be familiar with the concept of present responsibility, but it's become a bit of a buzzword. It's the underlying basis for action involving excluding a party from the federal marketplace through suspension or debarment. And basically, uh, in the article, I go back and I take a look at the federal acquisitions regulations. And it says that it is the debarring official's responsibility to determine whether debarment is in the government's best interest. The debarring official may, in the public interest, debar a contractor... For any of the causes using procedures, this existence of a cause for debarment, however, does not necessarily require the contractor be debarred. So um, it's a little bit into the minutiae and I probably uh, you do the article more justice by reading it than me talking about it. But this is part four within the suspension of debarment series. And I'll wrap that up next week and then we'll be going on to healthcare for the next five parts. So back to you, Tom.
0: So the um, next article we have, Jay, is about disclosure and notification considerations while managing a crisis. And last week we talked about our colleague Jonathan Marks uh, wrote about crisis management. And this article uh, it was a great follow up to to Marks's piece, Jonathan's piece rather, and it really drove home that you need to have a plan ready. When the crisis arrives, and certainly need to have a plan ready around your disclosures. So there could be mandatory disclosures. Obviously, GDPR in uh, the United uh, in the EU and in the United Kingdom has a, a very short window. Uh, I believe a uh, 48 or 72 hour window when there must be a disclosure of a data breach. But here in the United States, we've got uh, Finra Rule 4530. Uh, the CFTC has uh, disclosure requirements. Um, Reg SK, uh, for the SEC. Uh, so there's several mandatory requirements on that GDPR. I'm sorry, it's 72 hours, not 40, 48, but there's also other types of disclosure. And that's, uh, obviously voluntary disclosure, uh, where you can, um, come in and get credit for, uh, making a disclosure. Obviously in, in our world, Jay, the FCPA is probably the most well known around that, but other agencies such as the EPA and now the, um, Uh, 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 attorney trust, uh, excuse me, antitrust division have um, discounts and leniency available for um, disclosure. There's also disclosures uh, based on some prior resolutions. So does your company have uh, any type of prior agreement with the government which would mandate a disclosure, a DPA, an NPA, a declination, or some other settlement agreement with uh, the department? Uh, which would mandate a disclosure. And finally, what about disclosure to commercial partners? Uh, do you have any contract where that's required? And uh, But more importantly, from the business or uh, commercial partner relationship perspective, do you need to disclose the information? So all of these are important considerations. There are different types of disclosures. They may be different types of information you have to disclose, but you need to have a program and process in place to do so prior to the crisis arising, because if you're uh, trying to figure out who you need to tell that the barn is on fire while the barn is burning, you're probably uh, not going to give that your highest and uh, most intent in um, attention. Uh, next up, Jay, we have a article from several lawyers at uh, Wacht and Liptel about why compliance matters, and I found this a very interesting article it's certainly broader than simply anti-corruption compliance. And they saw four, uh, these lawyers see four developments which support this view. Uh, the first one is uh, literally in the last 18 months since the um, announcement of the uh, uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy by Rod Rosenstein, the uh, the government's decision-making process has become much more transparent, and they are using both the carrot and the stick when um, – Companies uh, have robust compliance. Obviously, the carrot was the cognizant technology matter where the company had a uh, C-suite involvement uh, yet received a declination. But the, the stick was the Rabble Bank, uh, which, where the DOJ insisted on a corporate guilty plea for Bank Secrecy Act and AML violations uh, because the bank had implemented a flawed uh, BSA AML program. Uh, next was the... Um, 2019 guidance, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs issued by the Department of Justice uh, earlier this year, and um, that uh, clearly the department is putting a much more um, uh, robust analysis on compliance going forward. And then finally, the uh, use of DPAs and NPAs and increased enforcement outside of the United States. Um We've had a variety of, of cases uh, where there's been uh, prosecutors from outside the United States have taken the lead on anti, anti-corruption. But also, most interestingly, state attorney generals are becoming much more uh, active. And if uh, state attorney generals find state laws which have been broken around uh, certainly international uh, anti-corruption, anti-competitive activities, data privacy, data breach, and um, it's going to, I think, take up the game uh, quite a bit. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see the state AG's role in uh, advancing the compliance ball going forward. So a very interesting article, and um, uh, we, uh, we suggest you check it out going forward.
1: Uh, so next up, we have an article from John Horowitz, which is coming to us uh, from the NAVIX website. And basically, he talks about social media compliance and responding to an employee's disparaging uh, post. Uh, The social media revolution has changed the modern workplace in ways that could not possibly have been foreseen. Uh, Today's water cooler conversation really tends to happen online. And one of the couple things that he looks at are Section 7 and Section 8 of the National Labor Relations Act. And he wonders whether or not social media is protected activity under Section 7. The NLB has broadly defined the terms and conditions of employment, which include but are not limited to wages, benefits, working conditions. The fact, as I said, that the water cooler conversations now occur via social media postings, which can be viewed by members of the public, including customers, does not mean that employers are no longer afforded protection under Section 7. After determining what the employees are communicating about, the second step is to determine who the employer is intending to reach. A single employee may be engaged in protective concerted activity if he or she is acting on the authority of other employees, bringing group complaints, or trying to induce group action. Uh, The best way in dealing with situations like this is to eliminate the reasons why employees resort to social media to make complaints. So to make it easier for internal reporting to have a speak-up culture, develop and implement a balanced social media compliance strategy, and uh, as I said before, create the culture to speak up. Once in place, these steps should ensure your employees are aware of all the channels available to them should they have a problem on the job, including issues with supervisors. Naturally, these types of policies must be supported by a corporate culture of trust where employees feel safe to report and complain. Bad online reviews are not an online problem. They are a real-life problem. And if you own a restaurant, the solution to your bad restaurant reviews is not found online. You solve it in the kitchen. While the law governing social media is continually evolving, fostering an environment where employees feel comfortable expressing themselves to an employer is always the safest harbor.
0: So with um, Jeff Kaplan is back, one of uh, certainly uh, our favorite contributors in the blogosphere around uh, ethics and compliance, and he's got the Conflict of Interest blog, and he had a really interesting article which looked at high-risk potential employees and he uh, took a look at it from uh, kind of the behavioral angle, and he said that uh, it's important to identify high-risk potential employees, not simply those that are high-risk, i.e. those who may be dealing with foreign government officials or those of state-owned enterprises, but uh, what uh, is an indicia of a high-risk employee. So he took a look at uh, a few... Uh, indicia. That included uh, employees uh, who may uh, downplay or badmouth ethics during the hiring stage, Uh, the powerful, the very few powerful within an organization. Uh, Once you've identified those, uh, take a look at them for their risk-taking behavior, uh, and does it factor into managing uh, employees, promotions, and compensations decisions? Um, Do you have proper training around um, high-risk employees for specific or risky jobs. And uh, as ethical companies become ambassadors really throughout the, or uh, uh, are, 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 are promoted rather, they should become ambassadors throughout the organization. So a very interesting look at not simply uh, high-risk employees, but those the, of potentially high risk, uh, very interesting. And then, uh, Jay, we end with uh, really some comings and goings in the fraud section from Dylan Toker over at the uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. You want to tell us about that?
1: Yep. So uh, Robert Zink will permanently fill a position left in limbo after its former occupant was attacked by uh, the Robert Mueller Special Counsel Office. Uh, Robert Zink has now been named chief of the agency's criminal fraud section the move was, move was announced Monday by Assistant Attorney General Brian Benskowski. Zink was one of two former prosecutors to occupy the position once Andrew Weissman joined Robert Mueller's team. Mr. Zink joined the section in fraud section in 2010 and was appointed acting chief in January after serving as acting fraud section deputy. The other prosecutor, Sandra Moser, left the position earlier this year to join Quinn Emanuel. Um, basically, uh, we have a couple other comings and goings. Dan Kahn, who until Monday was chief of the section's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit, was named as senior deputy, according to Benskowski's memo. Christopher Sotero, an assistant chief of the Foreign Bribery Unit, will serve as the unit's acting chief. And then another newly promoted senior deputy is Joseph Binsterbauer, who was promoted from his position as chief of the section's health care fraud unit. Mr. Benskowski also cemented the status of the section's strategy policy and training unit, where Sally Malloy, who served as acting chief of that section since January, is now the permanent chief. So it seems like with a lot of these moves, uh, Benskowski has really solidified who's doing what, and the organization is uh, in good stead to continue on into the next year. Tom, uh, I understand uh, you are at season three of uh, Star Trek, the original series. What did you talk about this week?
0: So, Jay, uh, we're either fortunately or unfortunately, I can't tell. Uh, we are nearly halfway through the final season of Star Trek. Uh, unfortunately, because that means I'm going to not be able to do them going forward. Fortunately, it's because I won't have to do them going forward. So, uh Podcast: a daily podcast series, uh, sometimes can become overwhelming. Nevertheless, I had some great episodes this week. Uh, I started with uh, what I think is absolute worst, Star Trek, the original series episode, and The Children Shall Lead. Then, the, Is There No Truth in Beauty, one of my top three, Specter of the Gun and uh, Day of the Dove. And uh, today, uh, posting, uh, looks like here, just uh, in a few minutes after we conclude this recording, we will have... Uh, for I have touched the sky and the world is hollow. So uh, I've had a ton of fun doing this. I know a lot of people have enjoyed these. They've been very popular uh, in terms of downloads. So uh, check it out. Um, I think we're probably going to do the movie uh, movies uh, after this series, and we'll certainly uh, cross-post those on Popcorn and Compliance. Ben Lockwin and I are going to do a series around science and Star Trek. So uh, I just had a ton of fun. I know a lot of people have enjoyed these. Uh, Trouble with Tribbles was uh, the number one download for this series. No surprise there. And then finally, Jay, I'd like to end with uh, really a request uh, to honor a good friend of ours, Doug Cornelius. And uh, Doug participates in a two-day, 192 annual bike ride called the Pan Mass Bike Ride, which literally rides across Massachusetts from border to border. And he does this uh, to help raise money for cancer. Uh, Doug, like most of us, have lo- has lost one or more good friends to this disease. He's lost friends who were unfortunately closer to his age than closer to our parents' age. And so, um, as many of you know, I'm a former cyclist and uh, used to ride in the uh, MS-150 so uh I can't do that anymore but Doug can ride and he does and he's a a great biker uh bikes uh, literally throughout the year to work big fan of the tour as well as I am just completed the, the Tour de France and uh so if you would uh you know feel like donating some money we've I've linked to uh his page donation page I hope you'll join me in making a donation to um Doug Cornelius, the fight against cancer, and the annual uh, Pan Mass Bike Challenge. So um, that really uh, brings us to the end of this episode.
1: So, on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 165 for the week ending August 2nd, the Granky to the Astros edition. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you next week.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have any questions to me, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this week, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up some of the week's top clients and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.